I'll be reading from verses 1 through to 17. That's John chapter 13, reading from verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, Not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Joe Massey. And now we'll revert to English. <laughs> uh, it's great to be with you again at the end of today. Uh, and let me just say it's been a great privilege uh, to be with you over the course of the weekend and uh, a great honor to be able to uh, speak on this glorious subject of, of the cross. I trust that uh, something of what has been shared from God's word has been of use to you. Well, what does success look like in Christian ministry? Or what should Christian ministry look like? Uh, Jeff uh, yesterday was telling us about uh, the, the MAP program and uh, suggesting that would-be apprentices should find a trainer that they'd like to be like. But who should they want to be like? Who should you want to be like as you think about uh, full-time vocational ministry? Uh, what does the model Christian minister look like? See, someone who's theologically astute, a dynamic preacher, someone who's good with people, a visionary leader, a strategic thinker, an entrepreneur, a charismatic personality. Let's listen to how the Apostle Paul describes his ministry. 
He says he wants to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, We apostles always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Paul saw the cross as the shape of his ministry. Uh, He saw his ministry as a participation in the sufferings of Christ. And it's not surprising because Paul saw the cross as the shape for the whole Christian life. In urging Christians to give generously, Paul points to the cross. In our attitude to those with weak consciences, he says we're to be governed by Christ's example at the cross. Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Our relationships with others in the church are to be governed by the same mindset as Christ in his humble service on the cross. For Paul, the cross is right at the heart of all New Testament ethics. It shapes the whole Christian life. But let's come back to how he viewed his ministry. Uh, In Galatians 6, Paul says, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, he wasn't talking about having Jesus tattoos or anything like that. He was saying he could literally put up his clothing and show the marks of Christ, show the scars of the lashes that he'd received. They showed very clearly that he was a true servant of Christ. And when I hear that, I find myself asking, where's the evidence in my life that I follow a crucified king? Where's the evidence in my life that I serve a crucified saviour? Now, for Paul, it wasn't just about the physical persecutions. His whole life and ministry were shaped by the cross. Michael Gorman says in his book, Cruciformity, Paul wanted his life and ministry to tell a story, a story that corresponded to the story of the cross, to his gospel. Paul wanted his life and his message to match up. He preached Christ crucified, and he wanted the model or the pattern, the character of his ministry to tell the same story. Authentic gospel ministry, then, is cross-shaped. It's modeled on the cross. It's about following the way of the cross. But what does that look like? I've asked a few people over the last couple of days what they think when, I, you, know, when you think of a cross-shaped ministry, and uh, we've struggled to come up with answers. What does a cross-shaped ministry look like? In the re- reading from John 13, Jesus sets the pattern for Christian leadership and service and ministry. So have a look again at verse 14. John 13, verse 14. Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So as servants of our master Jesus, as messengers sent by Jesus, we're called to follow his example of humble, selfless service for the sake of salvation. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet 
prefigures his death on the cross. It's a a lived out demonstration of what the cross entails. Humble, selfless service for the sake of salvation. And so tonight we're going to explore just a bit of what cross-shaped ministry might look like. There's so many things that could be said. So many ways in which the cross shapes our ministries. We're going to explore just five this evening. And we're going to jump around a bit in in our Bibles. Um, I find writing topical talks quite hard. And maybe I should have rooted myself in one passage. But I decided not to. So we will be jumping around. Uh, The five ideas we're looking at uh, overlap somewhat. Uh, They're not entirely distinct. But hopefully we'll be able to build up some sort of idea of what cross-shaped ministry entails. So let's turn firstly to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, of course, these verses don't apply simply to gospel ministers, do they? This is Jesus' call to discipleship. And it's clear that the call to discipleship is a call to service. It's a call to ministry, a call to gospel ministry. All Christians are called to lose their lives for Jesus and his gospel. All Christians are called to sacrificial cross-shaped ministry. Uh, Some of you may be here this weekend and you're wondering if you're called to ministry. Well, these verses give a pretty clear answer. You are. You are called to ministry. All Christians are called to ministry. But more than that, all Christians are called to martyrdom. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat his evangelistic appeal one bit, does he? It is an invitation to die. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. Now, in persecuted churches, that is very real. Martyrdom's written into the call to conversion. To to become a Christian might well mean persecution or imprisonment or execution. This was brought home to me earlier this this year. My my wife, Corinne, and some uh, were reading through Mark's gospel with a couple of Iranian uh, women. And they came to this passage in Mark. And uh, one of the women said, yeah, that's true. If I become a Christian and I go back to Iran, I will be stoned to death. That's the reality for her. And for many people around the world, to decide for Christ is to decide for death. That is what Jesus says it means. Whoever wants to be, become my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, of course, for most of us in Australia, martyrdom is a distant prospect. Even physical persecution is unlikely. But the decision is the same. To follow Christ means to choose death. It is to say, I will give my life for him. I will live and die for the Lord Jesus. And when you've made that decision, that decision for martyrdom, then everything else is effectively decided. A thousand other decisions about money and lifestyle and career and reputation are decided in that one decision to follow Christ to the end. 
The choice for martyrdom contains within it a whole life of cross-centered discipleship. Tim Chester writes, Why is the church in the West not growing rapidly? Perhaps one reason is that we haven't yet made that decision to die. For it's in dying, whether dying as a martyr or dying to self, that we show the worth of Christ to a watching world. I do remember years ago on a a 938 conference in the UK, which is the equivalent of CV, 938 from Matthew 938, Ask the Lord of the Harvest uh, to Raise Up Workers for the Harvest Field. Uh, On this conference, I was talking to a guy, a Christian minister up in the north of England, who had experienced uh, some real persecution there. The the bishop of the diocese that he was ministering had written to all the other uh, churches in the diocese warning them against uh, this guy because he was an evangelical. Uh, warning them that his teaching was dangerous and they should stay clear of him. And uh, this guy, Tony Jones, he said to me, he fully expected to, expe- to spend some time in jail uh, during the course of his ministry. He said to me, bro, you need to warn your wife that if you carry on into gospel ministry, she may well have to bring up your children on her own. Now that might sound sensational, But you can see how it could happen, even in Australia. If we continue to hold and to teach a biblical line on things like homosexual practice and the nature of marriage and the exclusive claims of Christianity against other religions, then it is not beyond the realms of possibility that we'll end up being charged with inciting religious hatred or denying people their human rights. We could be charged. We could be put in jail. It is a possibility. And it will be the church leaders who get there first. Are you prepared to accept that as part of being a gospel minister? You should be. To decide for Christ is to decide for death. I mean, where did we get this idea that we could serve a crucified Christ and avoid suffering and persecution. To serve Christ may well mean suffering, and it will certainly mean shame. Paul says in Galatians six fourteen, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. We've died to the world. We've died to peer pressure. We've died to the opinion of others. To go the way of the cross is to forsake social respectability. Of course it is. In the Roman world, crucifixion was the ultimate symbol of shame, the ultimate exclusion, reserved for the lowest scum of the earth. After carrying their cross to the place of execution, the the victim was probably stripped naked and then nailed to a cross to hang in weakness and agony for all the world to see. Just think of Jesus and the way he was mercilessly mocked as he hung on the cross. To go the way of the cross is to embrace shame for Christ. Where did we get the idea that we could serve a crucified king and maintain our reputation in the world? George Whitfield was one of the great evangelists in the UK. Um, And while he was preaching during the 18th century revivals in in England, uh, he was almost a household name. 
Yet he used to say, let the name of Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. That's got to be our prayer, hasn't it? If we engage in gospel ministry. Lord, make us content to be nothing in the eyes of the world. If only Jesus is honored and exalted in our lives. To be a Christian is to be a servant of Jesus. It's to let go of all your personal goals and ambitions and aspirations. To lay down your life in his service. The West Wing staff serve at the pleasure of the president. You know, their lives are controlled, directed by him. As Christians, we serve at the pleasure of the king. Our lives are for Jesus. And daily, we're called to deny ourselves, to lose our lives for him and for his gospel. Secondly, the way of the cross is the way of love. The cross defines what love is, doesn't it? Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is a demonstration of love. Selfless, sacrificial, salvation-seeking love. And Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is also a demonstration of leadership. He is their Lord and teacher. Yet he gets his hands dirty, washing their feet. Humbly, lovingly washing their feet. So to be a Christian leader is to be a loving servant. Some people think that the Apostle Paul was a bit blunt, you know, a bit insensitive, a bit of a male chauvinist, uh, not much of a people person, more of a strategic, uh, business-like church planter. But the letter of 1 Thessalonians blows that idea completely out of the water. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. One Thessalonians two and the middle of verse seven. Paul says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Notice that Paul's ministry was all about the gospel. Uh, He was all about sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. But here he describes something of how he went about that gospel preaching and what shape it took. And he says that it was like a nursing mother caring for her own children. Now that is a remarkable choice of illustration, isn't it? I mean, how many of us, if we hadn't read 1 Thessalonians recently, would have chosen the illustration of a mother to describe the great Apostle Paul's ministry? And how many of us would choose the illustration of a mother to describe our ministry? Paul was not emotionally detached from the people that he served. He had a deep, heartfelt love for them. And that love meant that he was willing to share his whole life with them and to make extraordinary sacrifices for them. He wasn't like some hired sales rep who was just in and out, get the job done. No, he committed his whole life to these Thessalonians, toiling night and day so as not to be a burden. Paul cared more about their souls than his own comforts. 
Is that you? Do you care more about the people that you serve than your own comfort? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to make sacrifices for their sake? Do you love them that much? I mean, just think what a commitment being a mother is. You speak to any new mum, and uh, they'll tell you they've never been so tired in all their life. They don't know where the time goes, but there's not a moment to spare, and they can't remember the last time they had an evening to themselves. And yet most of the mums that I speak to make no hint of complaint about it. In fact, they generally say that they wouldn't swap it for the world. Why do mums put up with it? I mean, why do they endure all that hard work and make all those sacrifices? Because it's their own children that they're caring for. Of course they do it. They've got a personal bond. They have a deep, heartfelt love for them. And that is how Paul described his ministry. That is what Christian ministry is if it's shaped by the cross. A keen young Christian was once applying for a place on a a ministry training program in the UK, and he was going on and on about how much he loved the Bible, how much he loved to study the Bible, how much he loved to, to teach the Bible. And the interviewer asked him, and do you also love the people that you teach the Bible to? At the heart of a cross-shaped ministry is a cross-shaped love. Do you love people? I mean really love people. Do you love them so much that you're willing to share your life with them and give your life for them? To work hard for them, to, to labor in prayer for them, to care more about their souls than your comfort. Gospel ministry isn't just about preaching the gospel. Gospel ministry is about preaching the gospel to people. Broken, sinful people. And so gospel ministry is messy. It involves getting your hands dirty in the brokenness of human lives. It involves heartache and disappointment and being frustrated and getting let down. Of course it does. I mean, where did we get the idea that we could serve a crucified king and avoid getting our hands dirty. I've not been in full-time ministry for, for long, but during the years that I have, both here in the, and in the UK, I've had to pastor people going through depression and social anxiety, people with marriages falling apart, uh, a guy who had been sleeping with prostitutes, a guy who'd got his girlfriend pregnant, a guy who was struggling with same-sex attraction. If you pursue vocational ministry, you'll have to deal with people going through those and other situations in life. Don't be under any illusion that full-time gospel ministry is just about teaching the gospel, kind of detached from the people you're teaching it to. No, you're dealing with people who are struggling with all the mess of life in a fallen world. The gospel is what they need to hear, to hear for sure, but they need to hear it from someone with a gospel-shaped love. If you're in a position of leadership at the moment, just think about the group of people that you lead. 
What will it look like for you to love them with a cross-shaped love? Thirdly, the way of the cross is the way of sacrificial service. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet is utterly extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, their Lord and Master, their God, to think that he should get down on his hands and knees and take the role of a slave and wash their dirty, smelly, stinking feet. And it points forward to the cross where Jesus will serve them by dealing with their sin so that they can be washed clean. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Philippians 2 verse 6. This passage here describes the great descent of Jesus Christ, how he came down, down, down. How though he was equal with God, he didn't rest on his rights, but humbled himself, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, literally a slave, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul says this is to be the pattern of Christian relationships. This is to be our mindset, putting others and their interests before our own. And this is the pattern for Christian leadership. As Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 10, you know that those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, Philippians 2 tells us what God thinks of this kind of selfless, humble service. Verse 9, Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, because of Jesus' humble service and obedience to death, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who now occupies the highest place, reigning on the throne of heaven, is the one who once took the lowest place of all when he died as a slave on Calvary's cross. It is an awesome thought, is it not, that there's a place on this earth And there's a day in history when the Prince of Glory, the Son of God himself, acted as our slave and bled and died to deal with our sin. And that same suffering servant is now exalted as the one before whom every knee will bow. What does God think of humble, selfless service? He thinks it's absolutely wonderful. On the cross, Jesus gave up his rights and gave up his life so that you and I might be saved. This is the way of the cross. 
You see the same attitude in the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. And at the end of chapter 10, he urges the Corinthian Christians to do the same. Paul says, if we want to follow Christ, it means that we don't stand on our rights. We don't hold on to our status, but we lay them aside for the salvation of others. Of course we do. I mean, where did we get the idea that we could serve a crucified king without renouncing our rights? And making sacrifices for the salvation of others. John Stott says, There was an almost reckless extravagance about Christ's love on the cross. Yet we still regard security as our birthright. And safety first as a prudent motto. Where is the spirit of adventure? Where are the Christians who are prepared to put service before security? Compassion before comfort, hardship before ease. Thousands of pioneer Christian tasks are waiting to be done, which challenge our complacency and which call for risk. As we've been reminded, there are two billion people who have not yet heard the gospel. What sacrifices will it mean for you to follow the way of the the cross? Fourthly, the way of the cross is the way of power in weakness. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Two Corinthians four and verse five. Paul says, "What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake." For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says that God's power is seen in and through our weakness. Now, a typical household in Paul's day would have had some metal vessels for special use. But day to day, uh, they would have used clay jars. Fragile, easily broken. And Paul says in God's household... Uh, We're not golden vessels, Uh, we're just clay pots. We're hard-pressed, perplexed, and persecuted. But within our fragile selves, we carry the priceless treasure of the glorious gospel. And this is the paradox of Christian ministry. A wonderful, glorious message through ordinary, weak messengers. And yet, can you see that if it was any other way, then it would only confuse the message. Some people are immediately impressive. They're dynamic, confident, 
charismatic. And people flock to them. They're, they're captivated by them and their magnetic personality. But those sorts of people don't necessarily make good messengers of the cross. Because there's a real danger that people will put their trust in the messenger and their abilities rather than in the gospel and God's power. But when the message is carried by weak and ordinary people, then it shows that the all-surpassing power of the gospel is from God and not from us. Towards the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses the the group of false apostles who've accused him of being timid and tame while they're so eloquent and dynamic and spiritual. And we might expect Paul to respond by asserting his apostolic authority and pointing to his great achievements. But if he did that, then he would just be employing the same tactics of, of boasting that they are. And so instead, we find Paul listing off a great catalogue of his sufferings and persecutions. He says in chapter 11, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So what do you look for in the model Christian leader? Who are the leaders that you esteem? Are they the dynamic, the eloquent, the assertive, the charismatic What sort of leader do you aspire to be? Evelyn Ashley says, on her observation in the West, while we're no longer scandalized by the cross itself, we are scandalized by leadership modeled on the cross. Leadership that displays human weakness, human limitation, human suffering and human fragility, but functions in God's power. Somewhere along the line, she says, we seem to have fallen in the same trap as the Corinthian church. We've come to value power, control, and success. A cross-shaped Christian ministry will display power in weakness. Of course it will. I mean, where did we get the idea that we need to be anything other than weak to serve a crucified king? Let me read you a prayer that captures something of this idea. O to be nothing, nothing, only to lie at your feet, a broken and emptied vessel for the master's use made meek, emptied that you might fill me as forth to your service I go, broken that so unhindered your life through me might flow. Finally, the way of the cross is the way of joy in Jesus. The way of the cross isn't an an abstract standard or code. It isn't about following a set of rules. The way of the cross is the way of Jesus. Why do I want to follow this hard road, this road of self-denial and sacrifice and selfless service? Because I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to become like Jesus in his death. I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to follow the way of the cross because it represents all that makes my Savior attractive. He is so wonderful, so beautiful, so glorious. 
and to follow him, to know him, to be like him, means above all else to go in the way of the cross. If Jesus is the treasure of our hearts, then we'll gladly give up everything for him. We'll say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll know that in losing ourselves, we gain ourselves. That if we deny ourselves for Jesus, we'll find ourselves. That if we share in Christ's suffering, we'll also share in his glory. And the more we risk for him, and the more we give for him, the more we'll discover his worth and the joy of serving him. Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The way of the cross is the way of blessing. It's the way of joy. Of course it is. Where did we get the idea that we could find joy in Jesus anywhere else but on the way of the cross? So what will it mean for you to have a cross-shaped ministry? You've all made five-year plans for your life and ministry. In what ways are those five years shaped by the cross? What would it mean for you to follow the way of the cross for the next hour? In the next week? For the next year? And for the rest of your lives? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would write your word on our hearts and enable us by your spirit not only to understand these things but to apply them and to respond to them and to to shape our lives and ministries accordingly. We pray that you'll help us to think through what it means for us to go the way of the cross. And we pray that you'll give us resurrection power. You'll give us the power of your spirit to follow our wonderful Savior in the way of the cross. We pray in his precious name. Amen.